Thanks, worship team. Do you appreciate the worship team? Let's let them know about it this morning. Yeah, I often wish that they were a tone on my iPhone. How about it? Wake you up in the morning, put you to sleep at night. Wake you up in the middle of the day. Thank you. And uh, we welcome all of you at Good Hope Road. Welcome this morning. Let's all say welcome to the Good Hope Road campus. We're simulcasting over there this morning. And so let's just say welcome Good Hope Road right now on three. One, two, three. Welcome Good Hope Road. Yeah, we're glad to have you guys with us this morning. And it's the first time we've ever done this and uh, hopefully won't do it a lot in the future. It took a lot of work. Anyhow... I'm just joking about that. But uh, yeah, we're in the uh, midst of this series called My Daybreak, Part 3, and uh, Make It Your Own. How do you make Daybreak Church your own church? How to make it your home church? And so in the first week, we talked about that every church family needs to have a hospital, and that we have a hospital in our church it's called our Care Ministries, and um, that primarily the church is a family and an army, but it needs to have a really good hospital. Every family, every army needs to have a good hospital where you take care of people well, you help them heal, you help them get back on that life-changing journey with Jesus Christ. And so I think we have a great hospital here at Daybreak, and you got to hear all about that on the first week. And then last week, we talked about being um, my family. How many of you were startled about No Show Sunday? How many of you weren't here on No Show Sunday? You were a No Show on No Show Sunday. (laughs) Yeah, well, we, we kind of played a trick on you, and that was we didn't have anybody serve. We didn't have any music last week. We didn't have any coffee last week. That meant the Holy Spirit wasn't here because we didn't have any coffee. Uh, we didn't have any of that stuff, and everyone just showed up. There's no show Sunday, you know, and so uh, a lot of you were, you know, a little up in arms about that. I'd like to fill out a response card this week. I just wanted to let you know I had nothing to do with that. The staff voted that in when I was on vacation. I really had nothing to do with it at all. No, I thought it was a good word picture of what happens when we aren't ready for guests and aren't ready. So every week we want to be ready for guests. I think we had over 30 or 40 some volunteers sign up last week afterwards, and that was great. Thank you for responding to that and saying, I'm part of the family. I want to help set the table, have the living room ready, vacuumed, welcome, welcoming uh, place in God's living room every Sunday. So thank you for doing that. And today we're talking about my army, and every army needs a good picture, good future picture of where the army is going and what the army is to accomplish if it's to win out on its mission as an army. And I want to give you just a five-minute speed wrap-up of what's been going on in our church for the last five minutes when it comes to having a good future picture. At our March Membership Matters Forum, uh, while I was watching the congregation do some problem-solving about limitations of our facilities at both campuses. There was about 100 to 120 people with flip charts, doing all kinds of stuff, labeling stuff, writing down great uh, input about that. We were just problem solving, like what are some of the physical constraints of both of our campuses? And uh, during that time, as I was watching, getting to sit back and walk between the two rooms and, and watching what people were doing, it just hit me as though God spoke to me, this is the year of discernment. And what you're doing right now is discerning with God's people about what the future picture is. And so we've been praying that for the last five months. Lord, help us to discern the future picture that you have. After those Membership Matters forums, which the elders put together for you, and I helped to support, we sit down and do something called a debrief. And we debriefed after it and just talked about what was God saying, what did we sense to do next. And and, uh, one of the, uh, the elder group felt very clearly that we needed a strategic plan in order to make some of these decisions against. We have all of these great great ideas, but how do we grid them through something that helps us decide what to do and what not to do? And uh, so it wasn't long after that time, I believe it was the next week, that I got a phone call from my brother-in-law. And my brother-in-law serves as a a corporate consultant with a consulting company called Afterburner.com. Now, they like to call themselves that because they're all ex-filer pilots from the Navy and the Army and the Air Force and all that. So they're Afterburner.com. And, uh, and they also have the Navy SEALs that come in, a bunch of retired Navy SEALs and work with them on some of their presentations. So he called me up and said, hey, I feel that, you know, I'm, I travel around a lot in this, and I can't, I can't give a lot to my local church. I'd like to give back to the church, and I'd like to just volunteer my time to help you guys if you have anything you're working on. I'm like, well, we're working on this strategic plan, and I don't know what to do. All I have is strategic plan written on my notepad here. And I feel tasked that I'm supposed to. He said, well, I can help you. That's what I do. I help people put together their future picture 
and then their strategic plan that helps them get to their future picture in their corporation or organization. And I said, how much will it cost? And he said, I'll do it gratis. And I said, you're hired. So he asked me, he said, how long do you think this is going to take? And I said, well, you know, maybe a couple months, two, three months to do this. He goes, well, you know, in most corporations and organizations, it takes at least a year to do that. And I thought to myself, yeah, a year. Year schmear. It's been five months. We're not done yet. He was right. I was wrong. He has much more expertise in this area than I do. But we have pulled some things together. And as we do it, we're looking to do this in the spirit of Ephesians 2:10, where it says this, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things that he planned for us long ago. And so we're doing this in the spirit of we're not devising a master plan, a strategic plan. We're devi- we are asking God to help us discern what his plan is, what his brush strokes on the painting are, so that we can join him in the work that he's already doing, okay? And so here are some of the brush strokes that we've seen so far. And it sounds something like this, and this is kind of a thumbnail. These things are up to change, but, but uh, this is what we're discerning so far. In the next three to five years, Daybreak will become a church of pervasive influence by helping people discover and develop a life-changing journey with Jesus. This will be achieved through three unified campuses made up of 2,000 contagious members living for three compelling causes. And those three causes are to celebrate God's grace, to connect with God's family, and to contribute to God's work. Now, the statement that I just said to you, there's a lot of things behind it that God wants to build. And we've discerned that there are at least five areas of development that we need to attend to strategically or tactically. And they are people development, ministry development, financial development, facility development, and faith development, okay? And uh, what's going to happen through the fall, through the next couple months, your elder team and also your central staff team are going to work on these five areas, these tactical, practical areas. And they're going to come up with some things called measures of merit. Measures of merit just are questions or ideas that help you know when you're getting to somewhere on a strategic plan. But that's all their work. And then some of you are going to get to do some work because we're going to have a thing called a red team. You know what the red team gets to do? They get to have fun. The red team will be equipped by my brother-in-law to come in and shoot all kinds of holes in our plan. And why do they do that? So that you guys can be mean to all of us, right? No, that's not why. It's so that we can see that things aren't going to go perfectly and we have to have contingency plans when, when people aren't developed as quickly as we thought, when finances don't come through as quick as maybe we had wanted them to, when these areas of development may move slower or faster, we need to be able to compensate and have contingency plans. Now, that's all their work. We're not going to talk about all that this morning. Amen? We're not going to talk about all that this morning. Can anybody else say an amen? We're not going to talk about all that this morning. If you're a strategic or tactical person, you were really hoping that I would do that and talk about all those details, but I'm not going to. I just wanted to get you up to speed this morning so that we can look at also the heart of the matter. Because the head of the matter is very important. It's important to know where you're going and what you're doing and have strategic plans that are laid out by God. Every army needs it. When I was a kid, we used to sing in Sunday school, I'm in the Lord's army. How many of you remember that? You know, you sang it. You would like to have sung it this morning, right? And I'm in the Lord's army. I just want us to say that out loud on three. I'm in the Lord's army, okay? One, two, three. I'm in the Lord's army. Some of you are starting to sing it. I'm in the Lord's army. You were going to sing that, weren't you? Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So we're in the Lord's army, so we need that strategic plan, but we also need to have what in line? Our heart, our inner man, our soul, our passion, our inner person needs to be lined up. And so this morning, I want us to pull up a stool, as it were, into the studio of God and watch him as he paints on the canvas so that we can pick up from God how to get our hearts yielded and aligned with his heart and his soul this morning. And I hope that this interchange of the soul this morning will be rich and challenging and vibrant and draw you into God's presence this morning. The passage that we're going to zero in this morning is found in Ephesians chapter 2. And it goes something like this. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith, and it is not from yourselves... It is the gift of God, 
not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. When Paul wrote this letter to the church at Ephesus, he wrote it around the year of our Lord, 60, AD 60. And he wrote it from a prison cell. He was chained in a prison cell externally, but inside he was unchained. He had already completed his three uh, historic missionary journeys. And in those journeys, he had visited Ephesus, but then also in his third journey had lived in Ephesus for a couple years. So he knew what Ephesus looked like. Ephesus was a cosmopolitan city. Ephesus now lies in the place where we would call Turkey. It's in modern day Turkey, okay? It was a large harbor city at the time. This day, Ephesus is back from the shoreline because of all of the silting and buildup. But at that time, it was right on the harbor. And it was known as the marketplace of Asia. That was its mantra. We are the marketplace of Asia. Everyone comes from Asia and does their banking here and their worship here and their recreation here. Matter of fact, when you floated up in a boat, you would have been greeted there and seen the great temple to Diana, which housed in it the largest bank in all of Asia. And in the temple of Diana, Diana was a place uh, also to worship. It was a place to recreate, but it was also a place of worship to Diana, who was considered the patron saint of prostitution. And so you would go to the temple at Diana and you would pay a prostitute and have sexual relations with them to worship Diana. And Diana and all of the idols of Diana was a many-breasted woman. I mean, it's not even that pretty, guys. Don't Google it. The many-breasted woman. I mean, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, she's, you know, all over the place. And the idea was as we worship her, she feeds us. She nourishes us. And so Ephesus was also a place of great pagan worship, prostitution, but it was also a very wealthy place and a place where wealth was sought after. In Ephesus, and Paul knew this when he wrote to them, Ephesus was a place where the brush strokes of God were not only blurry, but they were effectively blocked by the greater culture. And so God wanted to bring the brush strokes back to Ephesus through the church to the people of God. And so when Paul wrote this, he was trying to push back the darkness so that the church could live in the light of the brushstrokes of God. And so the brushstrokes of God could come back and redeem the city of Ephesus. But his brushstrokes have been blocked out due to the sensual and seductive nature of the city, and also which was tied together with money, sensuality, sexuality, and the dark arts. The dark arts. All of that made up Ephesus. Does it sound familiar to you? We live in a culture that's not too different in our day, where other temples loom large on the horizon and call for our worship, don't they? They call us to engage with them and move outside of the brush strokes of God. The good news is is that God has still preserved his church, and in his church, he asks us to get in tune with his brush strokes, to bring his life to light, and to let him paint us onto his canvas of redemption, which streams down through all of eternity, from the cross and into eternity. He asks us to do this. Paul shows us and talks to us a little bit about this when he goes back to, uh, when we go back to Ephesians chapter one, where it says, for we are God's masterpiece. Like the Ephesians, we live in a culture that not only blocks it, but doesn't help us to see it. And so let's look at these three brushstrokes that we can see this morning of God from from the uh, book of Ephesians. We discern the brushstrokes of God by coming to three startling realizations, okay? Three startling realizations. And the first one is this. We are not the master artist. We are not the master artist. It says in God's word that he saved us by his grace when we believed. It says this. We can't take credit for this, Paul says. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that we have done, so no one can boast about it. Ephesus was full of people who were trying to win their own way into the goodness of the gods, blessing their life, and trying to win rewards and pay for rewards and take credits for rewards from the gods. And Paul wanted to remind them and us that God is this master artist 
and he devises the master plan. God is the genius behind all changed lives, and it's by his grace through faith when we yield our lives to him that that comes alive. In Ephesians 1, 9, and 10, earlier on in the letter, Paul wrote this. He said this, God's secret plan has been revealed to us. It is a plan centered on Christ. Let's say that together. It is a plan centered on Christ. It is a plan centered on Christ. And so our future picture needs to be what? Centered on Christ. I'm not the master artist. The elders aren't the master artist. The staff isn't the master artist. None of you are the master artist. We just work together to what? Discern the brushstrokes of God and see what he's doing and join him in his work. And just think about it for a minute. What if you and I were put in charge of painting God's masterpiece? What if you and I were put in charge of it? Would we paint the central brush strokes as he did in red? Would we make redemption the story? Would we make the substitutionary atonement of our most prized possession, our one and only child, her son, central to the story? Would we be people who would devise grace by faith? Grace by faith. Would we come up with this just genius of substituting for those that are sinful one who is sinless so that the brushstrokes of God could redeem all of mankind? Would we paint it and the central color be red? I doubt it. You know why? Because I look at all of the other belief systems in our world that are about gaining credit with God or getting to a higher level of life, and they are all about what? You doing it. We self-atone. We pay for our own sin. We do pay. We've even introduced it in some ways into the Christian church, haven't we? We get saved by grace, and then we try to atone for the rest of our lives by doing good works. And God keeps taking us back. No, you're saved by grace. No, you're saved by grace. No, you're saved by grace. Faith through grace. You don't atone, I atone. We would have never come up with that. That's why we're not the master artist. That's why we don't get to pick up the brush and we don't get to paint. We get to be the paint. We get to be parts of the canvas. We get to be part of his creative redemption through all eternity, but he is the master artist and he determines the strokes. It's just up to us to discern what he's doing and join him in his work and yield ourselves, as it were, to the hand of of the master painter, God. The truth is when we devise our own plan, we effectively block the brushstrokes of God. When we try to live out our own plan of atoning for our sin or making our way with God. In the book of Revelation, it talks about when Christ returns to the earth and he says these words, look, I am making all things new. Write this down. It's trustworthy and it's true. Does it say, look, Joel's making all things new? Does it say, look, Debbie's making all things new? Does it say, look, Cindy's making all things new? Or Paul's making all things new? Or No. Jesus Christ says, look, I am making everything new. Paul made it very clear. The central painter of the painting of all time of mankind is God. And Christ is at the center of all of that. But there's times where we forget and we take credit we even get proud of the blessings of God in our life and they think, we think they're a result of our well-devised plan or our well-oiled ministry machine. May that never be here at Daybreak Church. May that never be. The plan helps us follow the master and we never master the plan. Both the master and the plan master us so that we follow him into eternity. You know, from time to time, I'm asked by pastors and church leaders, people that gain some knowledge about our church, why has Daybreak been successful? I kind of get all locked up inside because I really don't have much to say. I sense that they want some answer to that question that I don't have. And so I fumble around and I look through the corners of my mind and I open the cupboards and I get in the closet of my mind and I try to come up with some answer that makes it sound like, well, I guess this is the answer. They want some answer to this. And I fumble around. I say, we have great staff and we have good people and, and, and we have the Bible and we have a cross up front and we take communion and we, you know, I just kind of wander all around and, you know, we have a good care ministry and, you know, they're all sitting there looking at me like, he is just scrambling. He has no idea of why Daybreak is successful. 
And then I stumble upon an answer that had I been a little bit more acute earlier in the conversation, I would have given them. And it's a simple one. It's a simple answer. Most of you know it, but it makes me feel like I'm in second grade Sunday school again. And you know the answer to every question in second grade Sunday school, right? Jesus. Every answer. Matter of fact, remember the little boy who went to second grade Sunday school and he went up and they sat down and they started doing the lessons and the kids are all sitting around the teacher and the teacher says, hey, what is gray and furry and has a long tail and gathers acorns and has big teeth and all this stuff. And the little boy says, well, I know it sounds a lot like a squirrel, but it must be Jesus. <laughs> and as simplistic as that is, as simplistic as Sunday school is, one of the blessings of Sunday school is realizing in our lives the centrality of Christ. And Sunday school has been a blessing to many children who later on in life wandered but came back to God. And it gave them some mooring points to come back to and one mooring point in Jesus Christ. And so usually I just will finally say, it's Jesus. That's what makes us successful. It's Jesus. It's just him. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about a well-devised plan. It's about following him. And it's true. That's not false humility. That's true humility. It's Jesus. We used to sing a song in the church that I was growing up, Jesus only, Jesus ever, Jesus all in all we sing. Savior, sanctifier, healer, glorious Lord, coming King. And he is all those things to us. And he is it. And he is the central painter. He is the artist. And we need to yield ourselves to the hands of the artist. Because when we don't, we blur the lines. I do. You do. We block the image of God. We block redemption for someone else to see it. When we start to take credit ourselves and we don't let him paint or we don't agree with it or we don't discern it. And what we need to do is let him take over the roles and let him set the responsibilities and let him be in charge again and just yield ourselves to the hand of the master painter. Let him dip us as it were, into the well of that color and paint us on his masterpiece. So my second observation is this. We have to discern three startling realizations. And the second one is this. We discern the brushstrokes of God by coming to the startling realization that we are the masterpiece. We are not the master artist, but we are the masterpiece. And that's hard for some of us to say. I want you to turn to the person next to you this morning at this campus, other campus, and say to that person, you are the masterpiece. Now I want you to say to each other, try to do this at the same time, we are the masterpiece, okay? Look at each other and say, we are the masterpiece. God's word says, for we are God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things that he planned for us when? Long ago. Long ago, the master artist was working to converge lives and bring people together. You look at the people at daybreak this morning in both services at both campus. God's been working for years to devise and paint a plan to bring our lives together for the glory of God. We are his masterpiece. We are his masterpiece. What's significant about Paul telling the church at Ephesus that they're a masterpiece? Well, the same word masterpiece that he uses here was also used for what? The temple to the goddess Diana. It was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. That temple was bigger than the Parthenon. It was massive and huge. And if you were in a boat coming into Ephesus, you would have been told, and now one of the seven wonders of the world that you see on the horizon, the temple and great bank, put your money there, put your faith there, put your hope there, put your sexuality there, come worship there. For this amount of money, you can buy a prostitute and have sexual relations with them tonight. For the, you can put your money, you can buy a, a, a gold or, or a silver statue of Diana to take back to your home so that you can take Diana from Ephesus back in your home and worship it. As a matter of fact, Paul preached so heavily the gospel in Ephesus that silver makers were putting away, putting up these goddesses together and they wanted Paul chased out of town because he was messing up the commerce. But the good news, read Acts. That's what was going on there. And so Paul says, if you think, do you remember the time when you first came into Ephesus or rode the boat in there? You remember seeing 
That temple loomed large in the horizon. Well, you are God's masterpiece. That is a false place of worship. You are a true place of worship. And you give your sexuality over to the God who made your sexuality. And he can purify it and cleanse it and make it clean and right and pure and holy because he did make you as a sexual being. But he doesn't drive you to sexual lusts outside of your true sexuality and who he made you to be. So you give that back to him. And you worship him and you follow him. And Paul was saying this too. Not only are you the place where God dwells, you're his dwelling place, you're his temple, you're the place where he's put all of his resources. He has resourced you. You are a depository of the resources of heaven. He talks about that in the book of Ephesians. He talks about us. You know, he prays that we would know, know the great resources that we have. What is he alluding to? The bank in Ephesus is smaller than God's bank that he's placed within you. You are his masterpiece. Mine for the gold. Look for the silver. Let the master bring things alive in you that he planted in you long ago when he knit you together in your mother's womb, fearfully and wonderfully made. So Paul is saying God resides in us and that he's put this treasure within us. And together, we are the masterpiece of God. Have you ever had some time to look at masterpieces? Go to an art gallery or someplace where there were great works of art and just study them, sit there for a while. I like it when they let you have a cup of coffee in a museum like that. I think that's, that's just part of a blessing of God if they let you have both. <laughs> look at it and stay awake while you're looking at it. And I've been able to do that at some galleries and some places. I, I've never been, though, to the Sistine Chapel. I would love to go to the Sistine Chapel, and I would love to be able to lay on my back and just look at the ceiling where, Mar where uh, Angelo painted the great paintings there. Michelangelo painted the great paintings there in the Sistine Chapel. And we're going to go ahead and, and take a look at it. We can't see it that well. It's going to come up on the screen. Th this, is the, this is the rounded vaulted uh, ceiling. And... The majority of these are pictures or depictions of the stories and accounts from the first five books of the Bible in the Sistine Chapel. It took, uh, it took him about four years to paint them, and there was a large scaffolding erected that actually uh, mimicked the, the uh, dome of the basilica there, and he took about four years to paint them. He went through times that he'd never done frescoes before, which are paintings within the, um, within the plaster, Okay. He'd never done them before, and it got so humid, they started falling off as he was painting them. So he had to go back, replaster the walls, do it all over again. This took four years. A war broke out, so he lost some of his supplies and helpers, but he kept painting for four years. And for four years, he sacrificed his time and his talent and his own treasure to be able to paint this huge masterpiece. But there, if you look close, there are masterpieces within the masterpiece. And it says this, I looked up some things about this, about Michelangelo painting this. It said the scaffolding that he used was curved at the top. It mimicked the curvature of the ceiling's vault. Michelangelo often had, a bent, had to bend backwards and paint over his head this way, an awkward position that must have made his neck and his back ache. His arms burned painfully, and according to him, it permanently screwed up his vision. He could never see right again after those four years of painting this painting. And as I thought about that, I thought, well, isn't, wasn't Michelangelo just kind of an illustration of God? Because God took his only begotten son and he contorted his body and he climbed up on a scaffolding outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago and he paid the price and he laid down his life so that you and I could be part of the masterpiece of God. Isn't that just like God? To make us the masterpiece, with his grace and his truth and his love. Our intention in our journey class is to help you discover the brushstrokes of God within our church, but also the individual brushstrokes of God in your life. In our journey class, and it's coming up at both campuses, this campus, and guess what, Good Hope Road, you're getting a journey class this fall too, okay? The journey class it's not only our membership class, it is really a class that helps you dis distinguish and discern the brushstrokes of God in your life. 
the brushstrokes of God around your own healing and what God is doing to heal your life and restore you. The brushstrokes of God about how he made you and the gifts and ability he gave you. The brushstrokes of God about how to have intimacy with God and enjoy times of contemplative spirituality where you meet in his presence and you sense the deepness and richness of God in your life. We help you map out your plan. At the end of the class, we have a coaching session with your journey plan. And the journey plan is about you distinguishing the smaller painting within the painting. What are the brushstrokes of God in your own life? What's he doing? What's he want you? Where is he challenging you to step out next? Where is he causing you to stop and be still and be healed by the hands of the master? And uh, we have both of these classes. And even if you're already a member, we would say come back and take the journey class again. We'd love you to come and to take the journey class. You can sign up for that in the lobby today or through your card today. And uh, it runs for 10 weeks and it also includes our next Membership Matters forum as part of that class. And I want to encourage you to look for the brush strokes of God in your individual life and then see how God is intertwining them and painting them into the life of his body here at Daybreak Church. So in order for us, Daybreak Church, to discern God's brush strokes to see the future picture that he has for us, we have to come to terms with the fact that God is the master artist, we are the masterpiece, and then the third point this morning is the best that we can do then is yield ourselves to the hands of the master. The best that we can do is yield ourselves to the hands of the master. I want us to read this next scripture passage together as soon as you fill in your blank there. Let's read this out loud together. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. I want to ask you a couple questions. Just a few questions, reflective questions about your own journey with God. And I want to ask people who have accepted Christ here this morning, I want, to, I want to ask you this question, a few questions. What happened to you in the day and in the season at the crossroads in your journey where you accepted God's grace by faith? What happened? What was God doing? What were you doing? When you considered amazing grace for your life, and you thought, the, maybe you thought this thought like I did. Oh no, if I accept grace, I'll be annihilated. You ever feel that way about your sin? If God knows about my sin, as though he doesn't know, I would be annihilated. But what happens when your sin and God's truth collide and you're not annihilated, you're cleansed with the grace and the truth of God, and you meet at the cross, what was his part and what was your part? Well, if you're anything like me, he was like the hound of heaven looking for you, tracking you down, having people and his word and other things con converge and collide so that you would collide with the cross of Christ. But what happened to me was surprising because when I brought myself to the cross and I thought, oh no, I'm going to be annihilated, I was covered in grace, I was cleansed. God took the brush stroke, the red brush, and he painted redemption all over my life. And he got out another brushstroke, which was white as snow. And he painted that over my life because I did one thing and I did the same thing that you did. I yielded the right of way to God into the depths of my person and my soul. Because I had been trying to pay a debt I could not pay. And I had been trying to self-atone where only God could atone. But as I moved along in my Christian life, I forgot about the goodness of yielding. I don't like to yield. Do you like to yield? When I'm driving, I don't like the yield lane. I do everything that I can do in the morning not to yield. I come on 581, I get on 15 South, and guess what? I have to yield to three lanes of traffic coming from Camp Hill. I don't like yielding. I speed up. I put my turn signal on. I flash my lights. I do whatever. I don't like to yield. 
And since I grew up driving in Pennsylvania, I don't have the faintest idea of how to merge. <laughs> Our merge lanes are like three, you know, three steps long. <laughs> you better be able to go to zero to 60 in 0.3 seconds. So that's all you got. I plan my way. When I have to meet someone at Panera Bread in Camp Hill, I plan another way to go home because guess what? If I get on 581 right there, what do I have to do? I have to yield. I don't like to yield. Do you like to yield? We don't like yielding. It doesn't come natural to us. It's not intuitive for our nature to yield to God, but when we do yield to God, we sense this freshness and this goodness that he's the master painter, I'm the masterpiece. And the best that I can do is yield in this moment, in this day, in this season of my life to the hands of the master painter who a long time ago had planned in advance who I would be and how I would live and how life would go for me. A few weeks ago, I had to take a 10-day intensive course, and it was intensive. I had to go up to our seminary in Nyack, New York, Alliance Theological Seminary. Just saying that is scary to me. And take a 10-day intensive course. I got to take this 10-day intensive course, and when I got there, I had to have a couple of papers and, and about three or four books written, and, written and, and read in advance. And then there was some work. I still got to do a bunch of papers now. Um, and academia kind of locks me up sometimes. I don't know about you, but I can get locked up. I can start to read the syllabus and I tremble. <laughs> Out foul spirit of syllabus. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I get kind of locked up in that, but I got to go up there and, and, and there's about um, 18 people or so in what's called my cohort, my teaching cohort. And I got to meet people from all over the world, from Haiti. I got to meet people from Hong Kong or in my support group and, and my study group. Um, there was an Anglican priest from London who's in my group, Greg. And he's, these people will be in my group for the next three years as we study together and grow together and take these intensive courses. And I, I didn't really expect the end of it. I wrote a, a little note to the dean of students there because he asked me how the course went for me. And I just wrote, I don't know what was better, the environment, the content, or the people. Everything was just a home run because God met me there. And one of the exercises that we had to do there was read 1 John. And they told us, read 1 John. Just read it through a couple times. And uh, on about the second night in my hotel room, I was reading through uh, 1 John, and I decided, you know what? I had the Olympics on, and I went up, and I just unscrewed the cable and let it drop, because I was distracted. And for the next eight or so days, just every day, the Lord led me into a time of bathing in His presence. In First John, all five chapters every day. It's not a long book to read. If you haven't read it for a while, pick it up. It's a good one. One of the central verses in First John is this. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we will have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, will purify us from all sin. It was coming down to the end of the class, and I was sitting there one day in class, and when I sit in class, I go for walks in my mind. Any of you ever go for walks in your mind when you're sitting in class? So I was going for a walk in my mind, and I thought I was listening to the professor, but I really wasn't. And I felt a pain in my chest that day. This pain would come, and it would go. And I thought, I've been eating salads. I've been a good boy. I've been eating raisin bran every morning and fruit for breakfast. So I had this pain in my chest, and so I said, God, what should I do about this pain in my chest? What is this pain in my chest? At that time, the professor said these words, and now we're going to turn to the next lecture, which is how to attend to the hardness of your own heart before God. And God said to me, the pain in your chest is the hardness of your heart toward me. You've felt disappointed by me. You've blamed me for things. You've held me at arm's length in certain areas of your life. And so I will allow this pain to be in your chest as I heal the hardness of your heart. And then he spoke a few more words. He said, the hardness of your heart affects your wife and your children. And you need to give your heart to me. 
and you need to bring it into the light with me. And as you walk in the light, I'm already in the light, you'll have fellowship with your family again. And all race, all sin. What was God telling me to do? Yield. Yield. The same thing I did when I was about 22 years old and I asked Jesus Christ to be the forgiver of my sins and the leader of my life. Yield. Have thine own way, Lord. It was in those moments that I heard in my mind's eye the words of an old song, a classic song of the church. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will. While I am waiting, yielded and still. And I've thought to myself since that day, what will happen in my life if every day, whenever I can, I steal away in my mind, physically, with God, and I get yielded? And I get still. And I let him pull me into the light as he is in the light. How much healing of my heart, my family's heart, my family's heart. Because my heart affects your heart, amen? And your heart affects my heart. But what if we were all yielded and still? What are the brush strokes that God would lead us to see and lead us to be part of him painting and using us on the canvas. What will he do in the next three to five years as we're yielded and still and his activity of the Spirit moves through us? And so I wrote just a little prayer for us to pray for the next seven or eight weeks, and I hope that you put this up on your dashboard or your mirror or somewhere in your home where you can see it every day, and it just goes like this. Let's read it together. It's called the Brushstrokes Prayer, starting with Lord. Lord, you alone are the master artist. We, your children, are your masterpiece. Today I freely yield myself into your hands. Clean the mud off of the canvas as I step into the light with you. Remove anything inside of me or outside of me that is blurring the lines or blocking the view of your masterpiece today. Lord, we, the people of Daybreak Church, long to see you in all of your glory. Please reveal the brushstrokes of your plan to our church family during this time of yielding prayer. Today as your child, I entrust myself to your nail-scarred hands. You are the master artist. We are the masterpiece. We yield ourselves to you. Amen. Amen. Now I just want to pray for you, but I want you to commit. I want to ask everyone in this room if they would commit to pray that over the coming weeks. So we're going to remind you about it. We're going to incorporate it into the worship services, and we're going to take some time to pray together corporately and individually about that. But what would happen if all of us got yielded and still? What could God do? What brushstrokes did he plan long ago to paint on the canvas of our lives? Let's talk to God together in prayer. I want to pray over you before we close the service. Lord, I want this to be our song in the coming weeks and days of our life. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter. I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will. While I am waiting, yielded and still. Lord, help us to know that the activity of God is not in our activity, but it is in yielding and stillness. And then you come and do the great work in us and through us. I pray today for people that are here that they'll be able to just quiet themselves, to give them times in their car where the radio is off and the iPod shut down and on mute and they hear you while they're yielded 
and still. Give them times in their home. Give them times where they steal away and get in their car at lunchtime and get away from the office crowd just for a little bit and they're yielded and still. Give us times as a church family where we're yielded and still so we can discern your brushstrokes and follow you and see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven through us. For you are the master artist. We are the masterpiece. The best that we can do is to yield ourselves to your hands. In Jesus' name and all God's people say, amen. Precious cornerstone Sure foundation You are faithful To the end We are waiting On you Jesus We believe You're all to us Precious cornerstone, sure foundation, you are faithful to the end. We are waiting on you, Jesus. We believe your love to us. glory of your name be the passion of the church let the righteousness of God be a holy flame that burns let the saving love of Christ be the measure of our lives from here 
to me in both services, so I'm going to say it again. I don't know if um, anything physical ever happens to you when you hear God's voice or experience his presence, Um, but I really sensed his presence in this room this morning and believe that he has spoken to us. But I believe he's spoken to us corporately as a family. Uh, For me, I sat in that front seat so proud to be a daybreaker today and so proud of the vision that God has given us as a church family and so excited about this next year and just the way that all of our stories, the couple hundred stories represented in this room, have been brought together and painted on the same canvas. 2012 in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I mean, what are the chances, you know? Like, he's intentional about bringing our stories together and painting his masterpiece corporately as a family. And I was very privileged and humbled, really, to be a part of that this morning. And God spoke to me, and I pray that he spoke to you as well. But also individually, he spoke to me. And hearing uh, Pastor Joel's story of even that pain in his chest and the call of God in his heart to yield his life to him. That hit home for me. (laughs) I think we all have areas of our life where we have yet to fully yield and surrender uh, to his brushstrokes. And we believe that he spoke to you and we want to give you a chance to respond to how he's spoken. And so inside your program guide is this response card. Would you please pull it out right now? And on the back, we've given you a chance to record what it is that he has said. And maybe you want to write out a prayer of yielding today. Maybe you just want to write down the few words that he spoke. Whatever it is that he spoke to you, give yourself the opportunity to continue to hear his voice as as the worship team leads us. And maybe you want to even look back at the prayer that we just read together and relive those truths uh, for your own life. But let's take these moments together and respond to how he's been speaking. (laughs) 